I am thrilled today's guest, Eddie Cloud Jr. Uh, Eddie, if you watch MSNBC, if you watch Morning Joe, is a stalwart on there. He is uh, the uh, James McDowell Distinguished University Professor of African American Studies at Princeton University. He's also the chair of the Center for African American Studies and the chair of the Department of African American Studies. Uh, he's written many, many best-selling books. His most recent, Begin Again, James Baldwin, America, as Urgent Lessons of Our Own, a New York Times bestseller. Um, he is one of the premier thinkers and teachers on race today. We're going to have got a lot to talk about. Eddie, thanks for taking time, man. Oh, it's my pleasure, Don. It's always a pleasure to be in conversation with you, Don. So, you know, it, it, there's not a day that goes by that we're not reminded of uh, the divide in this country and the, the, the inequities. A couple days ago, a few days ago, uh, after three uh, state legislators uh, uh, protest peacefully, uh, about gun violence in America and the continuing what happens. Two of the three get fired and they're both black. And w it just, we, it's, it's, it seems that we take uh, one step forward, two steps back when it comes to race in this country all the time. Yeah, it was a bit on the nose, wasn't it? Yeah. <laughs> for it to happen in Tennessee in the way that it did. I, I think it was really important though, Donnie, for, for, for us to see it in real time as we were as we engage in the ongoing debates around critical race theory or our history and the way in which our history shapes our present, I think it's important that we saw it and we witnessed it in real time because it, it, it also revealed, uh, for me at least, the undercurrent, the undertow to our current debates that race hovers. Uh, you know, it, it, it is this Thick, you know, this this torrent underneath our politics that can threaten to pull you under at any moment. And here it was out in the open. It was a throwback in some ways. It wasn't, uh, you know, dog whistles and foghorns. It was just blatant action, right? And so, I, you know, we, we're at that moment, and we have these moments in the country where we have to figure out who we are. And, and, and that incoherence often calls forth uh, what the novelist Ralph Ellison called a tricky magic. We have to figure out how to make ourselves whole again. And often that requires the, the ugliness of racism. And so here we are in this moment where we're trying to figure out who, who we are. And lo and behold, we have politicians and Americans falling back on grievance, fear, and hatred. And it's, it's a regular theme in the history of the country, it seems to me. I want to go back to your first experience with race. Uh, you were playing with a Tonka back in Mississippi. You're playing with a Tonka <laughs> truck uh, with a, a, a new boy who had just moved into the neighborhood. And yeah. uh, you're in third grade. Take us back there. Wow. You know, my dad was the second African-American hired at the post office. He's a Vietnam vet, um, came home, uh, was very intelligent. Uh, past exam, you know, and the post office was high cotton back in those days. Yeah, 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 yeah. And so he knew he had some precocious kids, so he moved us from one side of town to the other. And and I remember us moving into the house and had those old Tonka trucks. Remember they were sure they were they were steel. Metal, I don't know what he it was. Heavy. It was. I love playing with a heavy thing when you're a kid. It's the greatest. Exactly. Thing. Yeah. yeah. And I remember playing with my new neighbor, and we were making our Tonka truck noises. Vroom, then all of a sudden I heard, stop playing with that N-word. You know, stop playing with that N-word. And it was the first time that I had been called that, you know, outside of whatever my dad did, because my dad was a complicated man. Mm -hmm. um, and, you know, I just looked at my friend to see what was happening in his eyes. And 
it was like the fear for me was in him. And then he just grabbed his truck and went home. And I remember going in and telling my father, um, again, this Navy Vietnam vet, what happened? And I remember his eyes darkening. And I didn't learn till much later when I was a grown man that he confronted that man about what he said, said to me and what he called me. You don't know what happened afterwards. You just know that he confronted him. Oh, no, I do know what oh. happened. He hit him in the chest with the butt of a thirty-eight. Oh, good, good, good. good. <laughs> he said, if you ever talk to my child that way again. And then those folks eventually moved. And you said more people moved in the neighborhood. It oh, just, yeah. Was... The, the neighborhood changed dramatically. I think we were the, the third African-American family in the neighborhood. It was a neighborhood that the mayor of the city lived in. And, and suddenly um, it became all black almost, at least on our side of the town. You had another incident, and uh, you were the only uh, black student in your class, elementary school. I, it's interesting. I remember my elementary school had had one black student, Andrea Robinson. I don't know where she is right now. And I, yeah. I can't even begin to, and it was, I think back now, and I haven't even thought about this, is that she was an outsider. There was no, I never saw any overt, quote unquote, racism, but yet she just, like, I, she wasn't friends with the other girls. She wasn't, um, it was, uh, so I can't even fathom what that must have felt like. And you had an incident where you you felt like you were being called out by a teacher or something. You stood up and you screamed racist and you went home and your father again said, when that happens again, do the same exact thing. Yeah, you know, I have this, you know, I, I guess this is why I had such an attraction to James Baldwin. I have this very vexed relationship with my father, at least I had. You know, he could just look at me, Donna. Donna your father was a very, very profound figure in your life. It, it, all yeah, my, he, he comes up a lot when I my reading about <laughs> you and your growing up and who you are. Dad uh, plays a very prominent role. Yeah, I look just like him, and you know, he could just look at me and scare the shit out of me. Right. You know, and and uh, I remember walking out of running out of that 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 classroom. It was Miss Davis. I remember it just like it was yesterday, and yelled that she was a racist and my dad came home and I just thought I was going to get killed, you know? And then, you know, I thought I was going to get one of those nose to noses, Donnie. Yeah. And, you know, he asked me, what did she say? And when I told him, he said, if anyone ever says anything like that to you, you do the same thing. You stand up for yourself. So in the midst of the emotional complexity of it all, you know, he was instilling in me, I think, uh, lessons of courage and conviction of what it meant to bear witness and what it meant to stand up for, for who you are in those moments. And so, you know, this is what it meant growing up as a, as a young child in the seventies and eighties in Mississippi, you know, and um, how does one come out of all of that hole, uh, you know, in the midst of all, you know, the personal wounds and the public challenges, it becomes very difficult to imagine creating a self right in those, in the, under those conditions. Mm -hmm. But, you know, we did, we did. Fast forward to, you have a great front row seat to young people, people 18, 19, 20, 21, 22. I see with my young daughter, my 15-year-old daughter, um, comes to gender issues, race issues, uh, all kinds of diversity issues, very different lens than mm -hmm. my contemporaries, a very hopeful lens that I, I, I hate to use the word colorblind because it's just such a dumb term, but there really is a difference. What are you seeing with today's young people that either hearten or dishearten you? Well, you know, it's a combination of things, right? So I teach, I've been teaching at Princeton for 22 years. 
And, you know, the students who come through here are, are extraordinary and they will go on and they have gone on to become important voices and leaders in the country. And what I've noticed is, Donnie, they've, they've come up in the context of cascading crises. Yeah. They're just layers upon layers upon layers. Many of them have experienced school shootings or they've gone through those drills. Uh, many of them have, have witnessed, you know, they've gone through the 2008 economic crisis, the, the climate crisis. COVID, uh, right, right. COVID, I mean, they've seen everything. And so in a way, they have more freedom because they know the place is broken. So they have more freedom to imagine life differently, right? Mm -hmm. But at the same time, that freedom comes with a deep skepticism and sometimes cynicism about the, about the current state of affairs. I just had a recent conversation uh, as we were watching uh, uh, the DA, DA Bragg's uh, press conference, mm -hmm. as we were watching- In real time, uh, yeah. yeah. The, the arraignment of Trump. I, I wanted them to watch because I'm teaching a, a Baldwin class this semester and we all watched the arraignment together. And I was looking at their faces and they were taking this in as if it was just some another, another, mo news another day. moment. Yeah, another news day. Yeah. Another third, exactly, another yeah. Tuesday, right? And so, and what was fascinating is that they said, Dr. Glaude, you look like you're stunned by this. Because I was like, yeah, it's historic. It's never happened in the history of the country. And they were like, in the context of our lives, this is just one more yeah. data point. And, and so it was, so, so, you know, my judgment, if it's a judgment at all, is that, you know, they are skeptical about the current order of things. And that gives them the freedom to imagine a different way of being in the world. Yeah. So on the one hand, Donnie, there are those who are free to imagine something differently. And on the other hand, there are those who are reaching for old autocratic languages for order because everything is so out of place. So some people think that's a sign for freedom and other people think it's a sign of order and, uh, or need for order. And you can see that divide among the young folk. Cause some of, you know, I keep telling people, you know, Dylan Roof wasn't a baby boomer, yeah. right? Yeah. These young folk, some of them are being attracted. They're attracted to these, these ugly, these ugly languages, these ugly tendencies. And we have to be mindful of that. We're coming off. Uh, we're this is we're taping this the, the day after another shooting, Louisville shooting. Yeah. Five now, five five people dead. And, um, we don't know much about the shooter. Doesn't seem to be as disenfranchised as others, but typical white young male. Um, when what is the tipping point? And we talk a lot about this on the show. What what's it going to take? We've seen little six year olds get slaughtered in schools, and that didn't do anything. What is the, and we, we know that 90% of this country lines up, they want more background checks, red flag laws, you know, basic stuff. When is the tipping point that something changes when it comes to guns? Or, or is it not gonna happen in our lifetime? I, 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 I really don't know. You know, I, you know, my gut, given how, um, given how surfaced we are, some massive event that will impact entertainers, interesting, you know, yeah. athletes or politicians, you know, that it's not just going to be one politician or two or three, you know, or just one entertainer, right? Because I think that indifference that somehow the gun violence is over there, even though most of us know someone who has experienced it, mm -hmm. it's still a kind of indifference that it's not in my neighborhood, yeah. it's not in my school. It's that I think once it's it's, you know, wow, they, they, 
they did that, right? So maybe it, it it's gonna it's you know I don't want to you know to prophesy anything so so dire, but if it's a politician or politicians or or actors or entertainers or sports, you know, then folks are gonna see we're it's out of hand. And, you know, that speaks volumes about who we are, Donnie, because, you know, it seems to me that when babies are killed, that should be the breaking point. Yeah, 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 yeah. As opposed to a politician or an entertainer. It's interesting, as far as what I'll call the spread concept, I remember when the world really took notice of COVID was when Tom Hanks got it. Uh, (laughs) Really interesting. That's when, it was a Wednesday night, I was out to dinner, I'll never forget, and that's when they shut down the NBA season. So it was like the NBA and Tom Hanks. Boom. That's when the world shut down. Exactly, right? That just shows you how a certain kind of consumer culture, are, where our attention span lies, right? What, what, what calls it forward? What brings all of this into view? Uh, what we care about. And, you know, it's a devastating, I think, indictment of the culture. Uh, if nine-year-olds and six-year-olds uh, can't get us to the point to where we we want to get these assault weapons off off the street, because look, the police are courageous in responding, but if you can get off fifty shots, there's nothing they nothing, can do. Nothing. 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 There's nothing they can do. Shifting to politics a little bit, another theme we talk about a lot on Morning Joe is the consistent stupidity, stupid losing foundation of the Republicans right now. They're, they're on the wrong side of it. I mean, beyond the fact that they're still de facto leader, has a 25% favorability rating, Donald Trump, in the new poll that just came out. We know Donald Trump is a losing proposition. Their issues are losing. They're on the wrong side of guns. They're on the wrong side of abortion. They're on the wrong side of Medicare healthcare with Medi- with with Rick Scott last year talking about uh, you know sunsetting Medicare and and Social Security. Uh, they are seen to be so out of touch with just the basic majority human decency issues. What is it going to? I'm asking another tipping point. What is it going to take for them to? kind of wake up because they're just, they're on the wrong side. Forget where you and I believe. Just basic, if you're looking at blocking and tackling, they're just on the wrong side of just about every important issue today. You know, I don't know. I mean, it's going to take a courageous cohort of politicians within that party uh, to just simply challenge the base, uh, it seems to me, to step forward. Uh, I mean, it's not good. It can't just be Liz Cheney. It just can't be you know, uh, just a lone figure, right? It has to be a group of folk, but I'm not even sure that will work. Because Donnie, I don't think, and this, I've, been, I've been meaning to ask you this, because I don't think it's just simply about elections. I don't think it's about winning and losing. Because for some people, for some people in the base that, that's driving that party, it's existential, that the very soul of the country is at stake. Mm-hmm. And so even though people are saying, this is a losing issue, well, it's a losing issue because these people want to change the very fabric of America, right? Abortion, guns, right? The culture wars, all of these, right? It goes beyond just simply kind of wedge issues that you're using for polit- in a political campaign. For some of these folk, right, this cuts to the heart of, of, of this feeling that they've lost the country. And they're losing the country to people of color. 
Exactly. It is, it is the underneath, you know, whenever anybody asks me, so what, what is Trump about? What is Trump about? It is that by the year 2040, that whites will be a minority in this country. And that's just unacceptable. That is just a formula that they can't live with. And I see soft races. The, 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 the scariest people that I know that voted for Trump are not the people that we see being interviewed at Trump rallies, these insane right wing. It's people that I know that, mm-hmm. that they want to keep, the, they, they would never think of themselves as racist, but yet they want to keep things just as they are. And we don't want to share any more than we have to. We don't have to. And it is, I, the, I saw it with Obama that I knew a lot of people. I, I don't like, I can't stand Obama. Why can't you stand Obama? And they couldn't articulate it because they would never say, because mm-hmm. he's a black man telling us what to do. He's a black man in authority. But that's there, and that's there with educated people. It's not we. We sometimes think of racism as just you know these. The, like I said, the hillbillies at rallies and these people right. that are easy to laugh at. Look at those dumb people. The scarier racism, the soft racism, are the smart, are the educated, are the well-to-do, and who don't think of themselves as racist, but yet kind of let's keep things just the way they are. We don't want to progress any further. Yeah, you know, I mean, that's such a profound point, Donnie. When you look at the Venn diagram and you think of people who are on the left and on the right, you see that you think about that radical fringe and all those folks over there, that radical right wing fringe, right? And you think about, well, well, those folk we can easily condemn, right? And you think those are, the, you know, you, in the melodramatic way in which we think of politics, you have the villains and the heroes. Mm-hmm. But the interesting part is where they overlap is that middle ground. Those people who are silent and in, in their silence, they're complicit. And we always have to say, and you've been hitting this point since day one, right? The Weimar Republic was the most educated republic in Europe mm-hmm. at the time of the rise of Hitler, the most educated public in Europe. And it wasn't just simply folks who were, who were rabid ideologues who, who, who allowed, who, who made that horror possible. It was it was those who who were silent, who were content, who were indifferent, um, and th- those are the those are the folks who are who are most dangerous. I said the most dangerous combination in the United States today, the most dangerous combination historically, has always been greed, those who just want who, who mm-hmm. just think in green, mm-hmm. selfishness, those who are only concerned about themselves, right, and 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 hatred. So you get. The, the rabid racist, the, the greedy human being, and the white liberal who's afraid we're going too far. Yeah. When those three things combine, nothing can happen. You know, I early on, as you said, I was making comparisons. You were to, screaming from the top of your lungs. You know, you know, and I took a lot of shit. I actually believe I had a Saturday night show. I think I lost it because of that. I think some of the powers at NBC, I don't know, have confirmed this. Just thought I was going too far. And then it, as time went on, the parallels, you could not talk about the parallels. And I i believe that and it's so amazing. It was so clear to me how we could get there again. And I'm not suggesting a Holocaust, but what I am suggesting or was suggesting is that once you put somebody in a power position with no checks and balances, anything is possible. And mm-hmm. clearly with Donald Trump, anything was possible. And uh, I, when you look at Donald Trump and the way he looks at humanity and humans, anything was possible. And yeah. uh, and we say we came so close, if not for a couple of brave, uh, a brave attorney general in Georgia, Raffensperger and two or three other people. 
our democracy could have been over. We were that, and if Donald Trump was smarter and he was thinking a little ahead of time and was putting the right people in, in the right places, we were that close, that close. Right, and if we don't understand our history, right, the underbelly of America isn't as if uh, the underbelly of America contains all of this ugliness, right? I mean, you were using the fascism word that folk weren't comfortable with early on. Um, but what we saw and what we see are autocratic tendencies that, that were overrunning structures, overrunning democratic norms. I was saying this during the Obama years, Danny, and I got in, Donnie, I got in a lot of trouble over this too. Um, I was saying, yo, the imperial presidency is not a good thing. Mm -hmm. So all of these executive decrees, we got to be careful with yeah, this. Yeah. Because if you get somebody in this office who's not committed to democratic norms with this kind of power, all hell's going to break loose. And it did. And it did. So, Donnie, I think, I think we have to be, un we have to be, we have to understand the import of history. You know, to paraphrase Faulkner, was, 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 never was. Yeah. It's always now. The past is never past. It's present. Along those lines, what also surprised me, and because there are a lot of, we, we, going back to your Venn diagram, there are a lot of those people in there that are like, oh, DeSantis, he's good. You know, he's, he's very different than Trump. He's, he, to me, is scarier. I've never seen a guy that, because people come as advertised. His autocrat, Donald Trump's, autocratic leanings, I think, were developed. This guy, it's there from the beginning. It's you just see every fight, every culture war, every, and he's scarier than Trump because Trump, you could at least point that and go, look at the crazy guy. Look at that crazy guy. And he would, he would give you so many moments to let, to let you invalidate him and disqualify him to at least polite society. DeSantis, those same soft racists, Oh, DeSantis, I mean, you know, and he, to me, what is it that draws so many people to that autocratic strongman who is so clearly flying in the face of basic democratic tenets? You know, I, 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 was, I was alluding to it earlier. There is this ritual in American life. When we feel as if, you know, the loose threads of our identity are coming apart, if that incoherence threatens to overrun, right? Um, we we find scapegoats, man, and we do we do that dirty ritual that allows for the community to reconstitute itself. So, in the midst of you think about those moments of, of of extraordinary violence, racial violence, or those moments when the nation is actually trying to address racism trying to trying to address the contradiction and it calls the, the the actual effort to address the contradiction throws us into crisis which then demands the need for the scapegoat then we engage we do what we do with the scapegoat so we can reconsolidate a sense of who we are and so it we're in that moment now where there's are we going to be a truly multiracial democracy are we really going to be that, Donnie, where we, you and I can be in a room together and, and the fact of, of your Jewishness or my race, of, my, of my race as being an African-American doesn't matter, right? But the basic background conditions or principles that allow us to be in communion with each other will actually determine our relationship? Or will we fall back on, or shall we, not back on, or we will, will we continue to live, right, uh, in, in the illusory safety of these categories, right? Um, and so, you know, 
um, it's, it's, I, I'm so excited. I'm so happy that you're hitting this point because it's not the loud racist. No, they're not the problem. No, they're, they never have been. It's those of us who are comfortable with the way the world is and refuse to imagine it otherwise. Uh, they are the ones that are, that, that are, that oftentimes seal our fate. There was a, a commercial moment in the last day or two. I talked, I've, Talk, I do a segment, my brand up, brand down segment. And this was a stunning brand down for, not for the company, but that, that symbolizes to me the push-pull of progressivism versus re reactionism. And Bud Light just came out with some cans where they were celebrating uh, inclusion, gender, you know, gender issues and trans people. And, and the amount of backlash against a company, by the way, it's okay wherever you stand on trans issues or whatever, but that a company is not allowed to come out and say, that's okay, that's fine, we, we, we're for everybody. That was, a, and it wasn't a race issue, it was a gender issue, but that same push-pull that you have Kid Rock putting out a video shooting the cans and you have distributors rebelling, that it's just, it was such a, such a simple example of this tension that whenever we try and extend what the norm is, what people think a norm is, what their norm is, and guess what? Your norm is not really what the norms are, and norms are broader than your norms. The violent reaction. Yeah, it's fear and panic. Now. Yeah, yeah. Fear and panic just ensue. Um, you know, we're right now, we're relitigating, re we are relitigating the 1960s. Yes. We're fighting. Yes, yes. Everything we're doing. Yes. We're, we're attacking voting rights. That's the black liberation movement. We're attacking women's rights. That's the women liber women's liberation movement. Don't say gay, the trans, that's the gay liberation movement. We're relitigating the 1960s. And what's interesting is that the Republican Party is trying to relitigate the 60s. The Democratic Party is trying to control the, how, trying to win with the tropes of the 60s. Mm -hmm. So they're using the civil rights movement, the language of the civil And what gets lost in between the two are the particularities of the current moment, going back to where we began. Our children, the, young, the world that they live in, the world that they created, the world that is conflicted, is being pinched by those who want to relitigate the world that was created in the 60s and those whose political language seems only to be indebted to the 60s. And we get lost. And even in the brilliant moment with with uh, Representative Justin, Ju uh, Justin Jones from Nashville. Mm -hmm. What did we see just a few days ago? What did we see, right? Or we tape it, so just for us, it right, was just right, yesterday. Right, right. But what did we see? They were singing civil rights songs, holding hands. He comes in, gives the sign of the, the black power sign. You're like, what is going on here visually? What's happening? It's, it was a, it, and then on top of that, them, kicking out two of the black men, you know, that was a throwback. It's like nostalgia that had, had everybody by the throat. And, and so then you say, well, when are we going to generate, and here I'm talking to you, Donnie, with your expertise, when are we going to generate a language that actually speaks to our moment, the moment right now, that's not a hearkening back, but a, right, a language that actually reaches forward, it seems to be. Progressive scorecard. Bill Maher had an interesting rant of a couple of months ago where he was basically, the problem with progressives is that they can't celebrate any victories and look how far we've come. 
and why, you know, like we have a long way to go. I mean, he wasn't an idiot, obviously. He says, look, we, we're, we're, we, we have a long journey ahead, but we progressives can't accept any of the wins that there are a lot of W's in the column there. What's your take on that rant? You know, Americans always want to be patted on the damn back. Yeah. Yeah. We always want to be celebrated. You know, you know, Malcolm X, uh, here I am quoting Malcolm X on your show, Donnie. He said, you know, you don't want, you don't, you want me to celebrate you because you pulled the knife out six inches and you were the one who stuck it in my back. And now it's, (laughs) it's still in there, but you pulled it out six inches. Right. That's a paraphrase, a bad paraphrase. But I think that the point is, is that, you know, we have to, we have to acknowledge, I have to acknowledge that my life is nothing like my father's. To deny that um, is to be uh, naive, is to be simplistic, simple-minded even. The world he grew up in is radically different than the world my son grew, has grown up in. Um, and, you know, he used this analogy. He said, when my, grand, when my daddy gave me the wheelbarrow, it only had so many tools in it. And when I gave you the wheelbarrow, it had a little bit more in it. Mm-hmm. And you gave given that wheelbarrow to your son, and there's a lot of there are a lot of tools in that wheelbarrow. Tell him to use it. So we gotta we gotta acknowledge the progress. But there's a through line. There's a through line that that Bill Martin want to talk about. So in my dad's world, he had to deal with a world organized that valued him less than other people. In my world. I had to deal with a world that was organized in a way that valued black people less than other folk. Yeah. And my son has to deal with it. So the through line um, often leads us to say, leads some people to say that nothing has changed because we still live in a world where white people are valued more than others. But there has been change. Yeah. So we have to acknowledge what is what is what is constant and what is shifting, it seems to me. So I'm an old guy. You're a semi-old guy. I'm 65. You're in your mid-50s, early 50s. Yeah. Let's say you and I are sitting on a porch 20 years from now, and I'm 85, and you're 74. How different are things going to look where they're not? And wow. I know you don't want to prophesize, but yeah. you, you, we talked about a generation coming up, and we, we see we're, we're, we're going through the Obama-Trump uh, what's slash. Clash that there, 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 there we just we went through and we all that comes with those two uh, monumental figures. I don't mean monumental in a positive sense for one of those figures. So now we're going to come out of that, and that and it's twenty years later. Uh, the inequities of race will, will we have moved forward at all, or this is just kind of where we are, and we're going to be here for a while. Um, I'm going to dream a little bit. I can't say where we're going to be. It all depends on the choices we make now. You know, if we make the right choices, right, hopefully the planet will not be burning up. That's the first thing, because mm-hmm. we need a planet in order to live together. Yes, we do. Yes, we do. Uh, two, we would have articulated much more clearly a social contract with each- what are our mutual obligations to each other. The contract between us in America seems to have shattered. It's, it's, we don't know what our obligations are to each other, which will be important. Uh, we will finally get to a point. Wow where you love who you love um, and it doesn't matter the color of your skin, your gender, uh, who you love or your zip code, right? That you can dream dreams and make those dreams a reality. Um, I think how that's going to happen is going to require um, all of us to confront our past uh, honestly 
and to des- and decide and to decide uh, genuinely decide to be otherwise. Uh, so it all depends on the choice. So if you and I, we're probably going to be smoking some nice cigars and drinking some really great whiskey. Right. Maybe we'll invite Hyman. We'll smoke some weed also. It, okay. Right. Right. Uh, well, Hyman will change the whole nature of the party, Doc. <laughs> <laughs> but but you know what I mean. I think I think it would be wonderful for for us to be able to live in a world where we can deal with the human being right in front of us, as opposed to all of these categories, man. Yeah, I'm gonna end on that. Dr. Eddie Glad Jr., I appreciate your time. You are a gentleman and a scholar, so thank you so much. Hey, man, always thank you for inviting me, Doc. Appreciate you. All right, buddy, I'll see you on set. Take care now.